0: Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are yes, you sure? Is there any money in there? You'll right. never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. Are you going to try to sell that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? All right. Will your parents' moms, too? The savvy entrepreneur to the rescue! Congratulations. That really turned out well. i a really good job. I wish I thought of that. I never thought of you like How did you do that? I'm so glad you're here. I wish
1: I had the courage to follow my Hello everybody and welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. We're broadcasting here on WLCB 101.5 FM, based in the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. If you're an entrepreneur or a small business person or thinking about becoming one, This show is for you. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. I'm a serial entrepreneur, and I've counseled lots of startups and small businesses over the past 30 years. The show really has two goals, to share helpful information and resources, and two, to inspire you with stories from other entrepreneurs. I feature guests every week on the show who are willing to share their stories and advice, And this week's guest is Dr. Tony Orsini. He's the founder and CEO of a company he calls the Orsini Way. Dr. Orsini, or Tony, as he says I can call him, is a practicing physician. He's also an author and a frequent speaker on the topic of compassionate communication in medicine. He's the level two medical director at one of the largest neonatal intensive care units in the world. And he also serves as Chief of Patient Experience and Palliative Care for his neonatal practice. He's appeared in local and national news of all sorts, including Forbes magazine. He also has an upcoming TEDx presentation scheduled. And not only that, he has a book that he's published recently called It's All in the Delivery, Improving Healthcare, Starting with a Single Conversation. And beyond that, he has a podcast called Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. The overseeing Way, he says, was founded because he realized that the same communication skills necessary to deliver tragic news to patients
0: were also useful in the boardroom.
1: Tony, thanks so much for being on the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Welcome to the show this week.
0: Well, thanks for having me, Doris. I'm really honored that you asked me to be on. So I'm very excited to talk with you today.
1: Well, I'm honored that you joined us. Talk a little bit about what the Orsini Way is. Who is it designed to help?
0: Well, the Orsini Way is a company that provides communication training to healthcare professionals and to business leaders to help them learn how to uh, be good leaders how to build relationships with their patients or their team members, and just how to succeed in their professional and their private lives.
1: What did you to decide to focus on this as opposed to just the practice of medicine? Where, I mean, were you always good at having difficult conversations and communicating compassionately? Well, you
0: know, that's the most common question that I get when I do uh, my workshops around the country. Is you know how did you get into communication? How did that become your passion? And if you don't mind, I'll take a just tell you a story about what happened to me when I was uh, very late in my training. You know, I had wanted to be a physician my whole life since I was six years old. That's all I ever wanted to do. Uh, I graduated from medical school, went on to do a residency in pediatrics, and then decided that I would further my training uh, to become a neonatologist, which means that I'll you know be qualified to take care of the sickest and premature babies. Right before I finished my training, there was something that happened to me in the middle of the night. I was asked to go pick up a baby from from another hospital who was extremely sick and that only could benefit from some of the treatments that we had at our hospital in Philadelphia. And um, this was not uncommon. This had happened dozens of times before. This particular baby, when I arrived, was very, very sick. We uh, brought him back to the hospital over the Ben Franklin Bridge from New Jersey back into Philadelphia. What I didn't know is that the father was following uh, us in the ambulance. The baby started to have uh, worsening breathing, and the heart rate started to drop. And along the way, we started full resuscitation. When I got back to the to the hospital, my senior, and I call him Dr. Cunningham in my book, that's not his real name, uh, my senior took over and, and he and I tried desperately to save the baby's life I was very fortunate that day I, th- I thought and still think so that Dr Cunningham was my senior because he was to me a mentor a very compassionate person the kind of doctor that I wanted to be when I when I grew up and um, at the time even though I had been doing neonatology for 3 years I lived a very sheltered life. I had both my parents and I had my grandparents. And the thought of telling someone that their baby died just frankly scared me to death. And so when the baby passed away and we pronounced, right after that, the charge nurse came and told us that the father was waiting in the waiting room. And I thought for that moment, this is a perfect time for me to learn how to give bad news to a patient and a family in the most compassionate manner because who else would be good at it than Dr. Cunningham, who I knew to be one of the kindest human beings in the world. So I asked him if I could observe him speaking with the parent. And he said, yes, we walked in down the hallway, knocked on the door into the waiting room. And then, you know, frankly, Doris what happened next 30 years later is still, uh, still baffles me. Uh, Dr. Cunningham knocked on the door he opened the door introduced himself and he said my name is dr cunningham your baby's dead what and and the father went crazy uh he punched the wall i remember he knocked down the table lamp and uh, dr cunningham just froze and uh he wasn't doing anything and the father was screaming and and i went to go say something to the father and dr cunningham just said no let him be finally the father sat down and Dr. Cunningham spoke with him. And at that moment, I saw the compassion out of Dr. Cunningham's voice. And that was the Dr. Cunningham that I knew. But of course, all the damage had been done. After a while, we took the father to see his his dead son and uh, spent a little few minutes with him and then let him have some time alone. When I walked out into the hallway, Dr. Cunningham was waiting for me and he grabbed me by the lapel of my white jacket. And he, he pulled me really closely, about a few inches from his nose. I could see looking into his eyes that he was crying. And he said to me very firmly, he said, do you see what I just did? Don't ever do that. And then he walked out into the hallway. He went down, the. he went to the fire escape and he cried for about 20 minutes. And that day changed me because I knew that this man was the most kindest, gentlest, compassionate person, and I knew that he had compassion in him, but the skill of telling somebody that their baby died, even, and I knew that this man was one of the most kindest, compassionate people that I had ever known, but the actual skill of giving someone bad news uh, seemed to escape him. So that day, Doris, I decided uh, that I was gonna spend my career trying to understand if there is a right and a wrong way of having difficult conversations with patients and their families. And if there is a right way, is it possible to teach the skill? And so I spent 10 years of my career interviewing dozens of patients and families about the times that they lost a loved one, interviewing dozens of nurses and doctors who had given bad news, And I found out, yes, there is a correct way to have these difficult conversations, that you can help somebody in the immediate future and in the decades later, and that too, it was teachable. And so I began uh, in 2010, started a program called Breaking Bad News and have been training doctors on how to give bad news ever since. But as you said in the intro, in the interim of teaching all these doctors, I realized that it was the same skills that were necessary to tell someone that their child died. The same communication skills were also applicable during difficult conversations, during conflict resolution, and especially within business, when you're having that difficult conversation with a team member, separating employment. And and so that's how I got into the business. And with COVID, I've been working with businesses more than ever
1: yeah i'm sure well i definitely want to touch on how your business has evolved and why but first i'm curious you know i'm sure a lot of healthcare providers i mean you're in the business of delivering news that's of great joy to a lot of people occasionally but uh oftentimes a lot of things that people would really rather not hear and I have no doubt that certainly I've seen this on a personal level. I'm sure many of our listeners have too, where the news perhaps wasn't delivered as as gently or as compassionately as it could have been. So I'm sure people recognize they struggle in healthcare with having those difficult conversations. But what do you think it is about you personally that you decided to make this a personal mission for you.
0: For me personally, that, as I said, that day changed me. And I've always been a student of how people communicate, how people build rapport. I'm fascinated with nonverbal language, fascinated with different words that we use in tone and uh, inflection of voice. It's been a, it's really something that's interested me for a long time. And that day I realized that communication in medicine is not something taught to physicians or nurses. You would think as a lay person that uh, this is something that we cover in medical school and it it's not. Um, we're starting to do that a little bit. And um, I'm very involved in, in training. I've trained over 10,000 doctors now, but... It's just been an interest of mine and and I read books constantly, and I'm constantly learning.
1: Well, I'm glad you're out there doing that because it's obviously needed. At what point did you decide this was more than just something you were doing as a doctor and realizing you could actually have a business with this?
0: Well, I was first approached by um one or two fortune five hundred companies uh, five or maybe going on maybe five or six years ago to give some lectures at their their meetings about how to discuss bad news, specifically uh, the news, the communication skills that I'm using, how that could help their human resource people when they have to have those difficult conversations. But it was very just a small part of, of the business. It was something that I just did for uh, lectures and some workshops, and then COVID hit and I got a phone call from a major international company that said, please help us, our human resource people now are having this discussion with their employees uh, about loved ones and team members who have died. There was an international company that had hundreds and hundreds of employees die of COVID and uh, you you can't have a memorial, you can't have uh, services and memorials and you can't be together. Uh, and it's it's really fallen on the HR people to call Doris or call Tony and tell them that Johnny, who was in the cubicle next to you for the last 10 years, died. And this company was smart enough to know that they needed some help and some training. And then a second company came and a third company. And I realized that this is extremely applicable to what I do. And then I started uh, working with people about just companies about how to separate people from employment and uh, I started the podcast with the whole concept of the podcast is that the communication skills in medicine and the communication skills in business are really the same and if you can master them you're really way ahead of the game. You know
1: I think a lot of us are not very good at having difficult conversations Do you think our doctors particularly or healthcare providers particularly bad at it or just we're all pretty bad at it?
0: Well, I think everyone's bad at it, but everyone can be taught. I mean, after all the thousands of people that I've lectured to and put through improvisational role-playing, there's very few people that I find that cannot be taught. It's a skill that can be taught. But Doris, just like anyone else, Human beings are not comfortable in situations that they feel unprepared and not trained. And so when you're asking whether it's a physician, a nurse, or a new leader, a new manager to separate someone from employment, and you haven't given that person any guidance on how to do it correctly, then we get nervous because no one, I don't really believe anybody is not compassionate. No one wants to give bad news. No one wants to do it poorly. So just like any other task, you want to get it over with. And that's where things really break down. Once you're taught how to do this, you will stop thinking of this as a task that needs to be just completed and think of it more as a skill that you can be proud of, whether that's in business or in healthcare.
1: It is about us as human beings. I mean, why do we avoid some of these difficult conversations? And I'm thinking about, you know, parents having difficult conversations with their teenagers or people with their spouses or their family members. Why is it so difficult?
0: All human beings, I I believe, are almost all human beings are are good people. None of us want to make someone else sad. And none of us want to be in situations where we make someone angry. In difficult conversations, usually that's the fear. Is the person across the table from me or uh, that I'm speaking to, is that person going to either be sad at the end of this conversation or angry at the end of the conversation? Now, when it's bad news, such as a cancer diagnosis or separating someone from employment, of course, they're going to be sad. But if you use proper communication techniques, you can soften that blow and help them deal with the tragedy that's coming. You know, if I'm telling someone that their child died, nothing's going to change that. But if I do it correctly, I can soften that blow. But I think all of us are good people. You know, we don't want controversy. We don't want those difficult conversations. So it just makes us nervous. And then we don't come up with a plan and it just, it snowballs out of control.
1: Some of the consequences that you've seen when people avoid difficult conversations or have them, but it doesn't go well.
0: Yeah, you know, we know in medicine that when you have when you give tragic news to a patient and a fa- or a family, that not only if you do it incorrectly, that not only could that affect them immediately, like the father in the story that I told you, where he punched a wall and broke a chair and knocked over the lamp but that we know data shows us that if you tell somebody tragic news it can affect them up to 30 years later uh, with closure and you know um and there's many people out in your audience that you know may have been fired may have been let go may uh you know lost their jobs and you can think back and say you know in the end do i still have hard feelings for the person who told me, um, or did I understand when I left that room? And uh, I had Dr. Larry Barton on my podcast, one of the earliest guests that we had, and he's a world expert on workplace violence. And his new book talks about the manner in which you're separated from employment can really affect whether that person comes back and shoots the place up or ends up being a stalker. So. These are skills that communication skills are not a soft skill that's needed just for doctors. It's a skill that everyone can have.
1: Well, it's no doubt difficult conversations can happen every day. Do you think what constitutes a difficult conversation varies from person to person?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I'm not trying to equate a conversation about a loved one who dies in a motor vehicle accident with a conversation with your teenager. So there, there's various degrees of, of difficult conversations, but the concepts are the same. How you approach that conversation, how you lead up to the, the difficult news, those concepts are all the same. And if you understand communication, I'm a, as I mentioned, I'm a real big student of nonverbal language if you really understand on how you can use your nonverbal language to send a consistent message. uh, I'm not gonna tell you that it's always gonna help with your teenagers, because I find that to be the most difficult conversation, but it does certainly help if you have some training.
1: You know, it occurs to me that one of the things that makes conversations difficult is that if we're the bringer of, the bearer of the bad news, there are often stories
0: we tell ourselves.
1: Do you agree with that?
0: Um, stories in what matter are you?
1: Well, we we tell ourselves things to justify our actions. Either mm-hmm. yep. we tell ourselves a story that it's not really that bad or not that big a deal, you know, so we avoid the conversation. Or we tell ourselves, "I I need to hurry up and get this over with, so... We try to numb ourselves to the human side of things.
0: Absolutely. And and again, it's the same thing with think of it as a task. And if if I can give any advice to your audience out there that wants to learn how to navigate through these conversations, it is number one, have a plan. And it's always baffled me how many people will go into a difficult conversation without a plan. Once you're trained, that plan will become easier, but also to use your imaginations. You may not think of this as a difficult conversation. You may think of this just as a conversation that you're having with an employee to tell him him or her that they're being passed up from a promotion, but take a second before you have that conversation and take a deep breath and imagine what it's like to be the other person. If you do that, body language experts like such as Amy Cuddy and other people, experts, just by taking that deep breath and imagining, much of your body language will will fall into place. Now, if you're a real student of that, you could also use your nonverbal communication to emphasize and to even do a better job, but take a second, don't rush through it, take a deep breath, come up with a plan and imagine, and you'll be halfway there.
1: What are some of the most common mistakes you've seen healthcare providers in particular do when they know they need to have a difficult conversation?
0: Well, 100% of the time, it's even though they don't think they're doing it subconsciously, they're rushing through it. So one again, they think of it as a task, I've never been trained, I'm a human being, I'm a compassionate person. In physicians and nurses who really dedicated their lives to curing people, when something happens tragically, that in deep down in their subconscious, they think of this as a failure. So, one of the biggest mistakes that they make is uh, they rush through it, they don't have a plan. And you'll see how many doctors and even on TV will have really hard conversations standing up. To me, that's a you've already lost the game. You, you can't tell somebody tragic news standing up, whether that's in the boardroom, that's in business, that's for a doctor, um, and you watch it on TV, and all these TV shows, happens all the time. (laughs) You know, Someone runs out and says, doctor, how's my wife? Oh, I'm sorry, she died. Never, ever, ever happened. You you must sit down.
1: Now, it occurs to me that there is potentially long-term damage to the teller of the bad news as well. I mean, if you constantly try to numb yourself and not Related, I I just wonder, from a psychological perspective, if there isn't potential damage to the person who's consistently bringing the bad news. Is that something that you see as well?
0: Well, here's the interesting thing about that, Doris. So there is something called second victim syndrome, and I've had guests on to speak about that. Once you are trained on how to do this, and you can change in your mindset to stop thinking of this conversation as a task and start thinking of it as a skill that you'll be proud of, you'll actually protect yourself because the added trauma to the person giving the news is multiplied multiple times when that person is uncomfortable doing it. And they know just like Dr. Cunningham in my story, he knew that he did it wrong he was upset about it, and he cried on the fireplace for 20 minutes. Now, you you had a horrified expression when I told you what he did, but it wasn't that he wasn't compassionate. He knew that he had messed up. So my advice would mm-hmm. be that you could limit not only the damage that you're doing to the person receiving the news, but you could also protect yourself by knowing that in a terrible situation i did the best i can when when i gave that news to the patient or i i had to furlough or lay off that employee that i did it in the in the manner that was best for her or or him and that even though they're still being terminated i know that i did a, a, did a good job and i'll go home with less trauma on myself of course i'm going to be sad but that's how you protect yourself.
1: I think people assume on colleges, for example, and maybe people in, in burn units and uh, those kind of positions are especially delivering bad news. But do you think COVID has has amplified some of the challenges for healthcare providers?
0: Well, COVID has certainly amplified the need for this kind of training. Um, because now the bad news is coming so fast, like rapid fire, that we're finding ourselves into it. I would like to dispel the myth that people that do it all the time get good at it. As I say in in many of my workshops, if I teach you how to swing a bat incorrectly and you do it a thousand times a day, you'll just get really good at swinging a baseball bat incorrectly. Mm -hmm. And so um, just because we tend to do something a lot, You know, I play golf and I play a lot and I'm not good at it. So (laughs) many would think that just because I'm doing something a lot, I'm getting better at it. No, that's only if you're doing it the right way.
1: Well, Tony, I need to ask you to hold your thoughts for just a second. We're going to take a quick break for station identification. But folks, stay tuned. We'll be right back with Dr. Tony Orsini, the founder of The Orsini Way. This is Doris Nagel, and you're listening to The Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Our guest this week is Dr. Tony Orsini. He's a practicing physician. He's also the founder of his own company called The Orsini Way, and he's an author and a frequent speaker, and he has a podcast, which we'll talk about in just a bit. Tony, you know, we were talking, I think, about some of the challenges in healthcare and having difficult conversations. But I know you alluded to the fact that a lot of businesses increasingly have seen the value of being able to facilitate those difficult conversations. What do you see as some of the similarities and some of the differences between difficult conversations in a healthcare setting versus in a business setting?
0: Well, first of all, I'd like to say that it's all about communication. And, you know, in the people that I speak to in business, and many of the audience can relate to this, uh, there's a, a big movement now to improve culture with, within a, uh, an organization, within a business. And we're trying to get away with the old days where we promoted people who were the smartest people in the group and then wondered why our employee engagement is down, wondered why our turnover is high. Being a good business leader, being a good leader of men and women uh, is all about the ability to form relationships and to communicate well, not only during the hard conversations, but during the everyday conversations, which I talk about a lot in the podcast, and I also talk about with some of my lectures, that if you understand how to communicate, just every day you will be a good leader. And we know people that have been, me personally, I've had bosses who I recognize were extremely smart doctors, but couldn't lead. And I've had bosses who were great doctors that I would walk through fire for them. And when you look at what, what makes a good leader in business, it's the same skills that make a good physician. And that's the ability to communicate. And so the communication is really whether it's your private life, your personal life, if you can learn to communicate, and it can be taught, Doris, and that's why I get so excited when I talk about this. And that's why, even though I'm still a practicing position, the Orsini Way is my passion, because if you can learn to communicate, I can teach you how to get your team members to want to wanna work for you. You know, my favorite saying is people don't follow because they're forced to, people follow because they want to. So uh, the skills that I I teach, we have, you know, the parallels between medicine and healthcare and and, uh, business are so many. We have many, many physicians who are the best in their fields and their practices are failing and they're not well liked. And we have physicians who are mediocre doctors, very competent, (laughs) but their practices are thriving. What's the difference? The difference is one is liked, one is not liked. And I can take one of those physicians and say, listen, let me just teach you how to communicate a little better. Let me teach you how to build rapport and your practice will thrive. And it's the same thing in business. If I can take a leader who's super smart and work on their communication skills, all of a sudden their turnover is going to go down and people are going to want to work for them.
1: I'm curious whether, whether you, Are selective at all about your clients? I mean, it occurs to me that some are probably much better suited to be able to hear the messages and and be able to process and change their behavior than others. How do you know whether a client is actually going to be receptive to what you have to say and helping them?
0: Well, some of our clients, uh, most of them are there because they want to be there. Some of them are there because um, they were told they had to be there. Those are the most difficult clients. So when you have a uh, CEO of a hospital or um, someone who has a particular team member who's having difficulty with their conversations, and they're told, you know, you you have to go with the ears anyway, and I want you to That's take awesome. a couple of coaching.
1: No, I can imagine. It's like telling someone, you know, you need to go through some remedial diversity training.
0: Yeah. So the ones that are for, that are forced to come to me, usually I, I have several different instructors that we work with. And many of these people we put through improvisational role-playing. I use professional actors. Uh, but those are the challenge. But I love that challenge because it is a skill in itself. If you were for instance, Doris, if you were told by your boss, that, listen, you need to see Dr. Orsini about this, the challenge that I would get would be to, to make sure that you're relaxed, to make sure that you're open to this before we do the exercises, whether I use some humor. But I don't, I don't want to come over here and, and hit you over the head. I'm going to tell you that I know you have some skills and I know you have compassion and leadership abilities. And all this is doing is just bringing them out and it's going to help you bring it out. Uh, and those are the most satisfying people, I think.
1: Is there a typical engagement that that you have? I mean, what, what does a typical engagement look like or is there a typical one?
0: Well, it depends on the program that uh, that the person is looking at. We have learning modules, which you know are the bare necessity, but typically most of our clients are still in healthcare. Say, so it's still, it's about 80% now. The other business part is growing. But typically, uh, we are uh, asked to work with a group of of doctors at a time. The gold standard in the Orsini-Way method of teaching is improvisational role-playing with professional actors. And I use actors that have been on television, on Netflix, and Broadway. Uh, We use the best of the best. And typically, that doctor or that leader will be put through an improvisational scene in a difficult situation while that's being videotaped. And uh, my staff and I will observe, and then we would bring the person in. We'd bring you in, for instance, if I was doing a a role-playing session with you, and we would watch your video and comment on everything from your verbal, nonverbal language, your tone, your inflection, your cadence, the plan that you had until you understood exactly not only wh- why the conversation might not have gone optimally, but how you can fix it, and uh, and so usually a a coaching session, one of the improvisational role playings, and that's we see results just within that short period of time.
1: So how long does a an engagement usually take? I think you know one of the things I'm envisioning is that people have aha moments and things improve, but as you say, you're referring to, you know, hitting the bat incorrectly a thousand times. You know, adults have a lot of ingrained behaviors. And so how do you deal with that? Is there a follow up usually? Because um, I'm sure it, it takes time to really change people's behaviors and approaches.
0: It it does. However, I, I wish uh, your audience could could see how this happens. But it is very much an aha. And we have had we've had doctors and other people that we've trained that after we do a lecture or two and then put them through one or two improvisational role playing, it's like a light bulb went on. Like mm-hmm. I never thought about this. You see, it, it's it's in some ways. It's like a child who just discovered ice cream, like, (laughs) wow, I never thought about this. I'll tell you a quick story about a particular, I was sent a surgeon by a CEO of a hospital. And the CEO said, listen, I I told this guy, he's a great surgeon, but we're getting a lot of complaints about his bedside map. I said, okay. So I I spoke with him and he clearly didn't want to come through the program, but he had no choice. Uh, We did a little coaching session and the coaching session was a little bit of a little bit of education, but mostly it was to break down the barriers, loosening him up a little bit, let him understand that he's not being judged. And then I put him through an improvisational role playing with a horrific uh, scene. I really made it tough on him. He had to disclose a medical error and we videotaped it. And he was he was so bad, Doris, that. my instructors that I work with said, Dr. Orsini, this this one's yours, I don't even know what to say. So uh, we brought him back and I said, how did you think you did? And he said, I thought it was fine, you know, still had a chip on his shoulder. And I said, let's just watch. And so he watched himself for less than a minute, maybe two minutes. And I know this is radio, but he, he looked at me and he said, I am such an a-hole, <laughs> just like that. Oh. And I said, do you think? And he goes, I can't believe I'm such a jerk. I never knew that I was that much of a jerk. And so we, I said, well, it's not that you're a jerk. It's just that you, didn't, you never saw yourself communicating. You've never been put through this kind of strain, strain. So we watched the whole video. He was writing frantically during the review process. He asked to stay for the rest of the day because we were doing other physicians. And now he has been an instructor for us. And that's how dramatic that change was.
1: That's amazing. So truly anyone can learn to become a better communicator and have better difficult conversations. Are there resources that you can recommend? I mean, obviously your book might be a good place to start, yes?
0: Yeah, I wrote the book. Uh, it was just uh, put out in May 2020. As you mentioned, it's called "It's All in the Delivery: Improving Healthcare Starting with a Single Conversation." The book has some personal stories in there about me and and why I went into medicine, but the story of Dr. Cunningham is in there. And then I give very practical advice. Now, the book is healthcare oriented, so the advice. There's a several chapters on the special skills that are required to have that tragic news delivered, breaking bad news, as I call it. And then I do a whole, uh, the second half of the book is about improving the patient experience, which is really the hottest topic in medicine right now. So my book is a, a great resource. The podcast, I mean, Doris, I just learned, I learned something every week from my guests. They are just amazing people. We've had people like Quint Studer, who are leaders, not only in business, but in healthcare, People like Claude Silver, who's the chief heart officer at Media. I mean, we're, we're into our 35th or 36th episode now, and I can tell you I've learned amazing stuff uh, from each and every one of them. And every single week just solidifies my belief that the parallels in medicine and in business are just endless. It's, it's amazing.
1: What do you see as some of the biggest similarities, but also some of the biggest differences?
0: Well, the biggest differences, I think now when we're talking about being a leader, I see very few differences. You know, uh, being a leader, whether you're a leader in healthcare administration or you're a leader in business, being able to be a good leader is being a good leader. Uh, Of course, there are some subtle differences when you're speaking to a patient about a a life-changing diagnosis like cancer or that you know your husband or your child died there's nothing that is that tragic in business but as i learned many years ago giving bad news is redefining someone so I'm, I'm redefining you as someone who has cancer i'm redefining you as a widow i'm redefining you as someone who didn't get the promotion i'm redefining you as someone who's been fired i'm redefining you as someone who's now divorced and the process that that person goes through when they're being redefined is very similar with the anger and the, and the denial, and, and, and we all know those five steps. Uh, right. So, yes, the difference is, is that I'm dealing with life or death. But as I say on my podcast and in, in my, on my website, you know, if I can do that, if you can learn to tell somebody their child died, terminating someone or separating someone from, from the business should be easy. So yeah. at least life goes on for them.
1: I certainly can see some of the parallels. Are there resources that you found that might be great places for people to start? I mean, obviously, at the end, we'll have you talk, tell people how they can get in contact with you if they're interested. But Obviously, not everybody at this moment, at least, can be part of the Arsini Way. And in some cases, it sounds like it might be useful for people to start doing some pre-work and thinking about this, which might make them a better candidate for the Arsini Way. Are are there things that you found that are just, you know, you'd really recommend to people that they take a look at or, or read
0: or Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, if you want to really get excited about the way the human brain acts during conversations, if you want to get excited about communication, uh, there are certain books that have been bestsellers that when you read them, you'll, you'll just, you'll be hooked. You'll You'll learn about how your brain is analyzing someone 350 million times per second on someone's body language. Cool stuff like that, I'd recommend the books by the, the latest book by Malcolm Gladwell, Blink, is a famous book. And that's all about communication and little slices, how we talk that. We talk about Amy Cuddy's book, Presence. You know, Amy Cuddy did a study where she looked at, she took half the people who were interviewing for a job and she made them stand in front of a mirror with their arms out and kind of like an I1 pose. And the other half, who just sat in the waiting room and proved that the ones who stood in front of the mirror, did better on their job interviews, but also when she drew blood on them, found out that their stress was way down. So cool stuff like this, that to me, this is what gets me excited. If someone really wants to learn about communication, there's so many of these books out there. There's books, I'm I'm drawing a blank now, it's called How Your Brain Rewired Is Being Rewired. So these are, are great resources for people on our website. We do have some videos, we have a YouTube channel But the first thing I would do, Doris, is say, let's make ourselves aware that communication skills is a real thing. It's not some soft thing that we don't need as a leader or as a position. And then start reading books like mine and and those two books that I told you. And you'll be so excited. You will just keep reading and you'll become a student of it.
1: You know, it's interesting that COVID has changed how businesses view the need for this. Do you think that that's a permanent change or will people just kind of go back to the way things were once
0: everyone gets the vaccine? I, I really hope that one day we'll be able to go back to normal and they keep moving the goalposts for us and we don't know when that will be. But I think that the, the impact that COVID has had on us has changed us. And sometimes in the better, I, I truly believe that people now appreciate what they have more. We maybe took our jobs for granted. We took our health for granted. And uh, maybe I'm hoping that we will start to appreciate. One of the things that I'm working on as my, as my New Year's resolution is to live more in the present. And that's something that I've always had trouble with. I'm always looking on to the next best thing. And um and I'm trying. I think COVID has helped me now to you know be real happy in the present. Just last night I'm watching a movie with my wife and I I, I reminded myself of that. And I think I think that COVID is going to help us do that.
1: Great insights. Where do you see your business Headed in the next, say, three years to five years, if you're successful, what what would you like it to look like?
0: Well, the next three to five years, we would like to grow to the point. I mean, we I still don't. I still think that majority of our business is going to be healthcare. I'm just a physician, and that's where the biggest need is. And with patient experience being the hottest topic in medicine right now, this is uh, something that I think our our skills are going to be needed even more to train doctors and nurses, not when they're giving bad news, but how to make that hospital stay more pleasant by being uh, into communication. I love working with businesses and I love teaching, uh, working with leaders to help them with their communication skills. But in three to five years, I, I I see this growing because I think the need for communication training is now really front and center. And we're doing things now with how do you communicate over zoom? What are the body languages that you have to, we just did a program and I wrote a paper. There's a, um, I did a contributing art article in Entrepreneur Magazine just last week about how to communicate non-verbally through a Zoom call or through through the internet. And this is all gonna be stuff that I think is gonna be needed in the future. And so I'm, I'm hoping that the Orsini way will, will grow exponentially over the next three to five years. Well,
1: If people are interested in chatting with you, learning more about the Orsini Way, or maybe finding your book or catching your podcast, what's the best way for them to connect and learn more?
0: So I can be reached at drorsini at theorsiniway.com. And that's D-R, no period, just D-R-Orsini, O-R-S-I-N-I at theorsiniway.com. The website is TheOrsiniWay.com, and we have a lot of information on there about what we do, how we do it. We're constantly adding different products and learning modules now that we're doing everything remotely, and I hope that ends too. But people can always contact me through TheOrsiniWay.com. Again, the name of the podcast is Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. And that's available on Apple. You can get it through my website also, but it's available on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon, you name it. And then the book is available either through my website or on Amazon. The book is called It's All in the Delivery, Improving Healthcare, Starting with a Single Conversation. Sounds like a great book.
1: I'm looking forward to picking up a copy. Tony, well, I mean, thanks so much for being with us this week. It was really great having you on the show. Very, very interesting and meaningful work that
0: you're doing. So
1: thank you again for being my guest Thank this you. Week. It was
0: a lot of fun. It was a lot yeah. of fun. Thank you.
1: Yes, it was. Now, we have just a few minutes left and I thought today we'd talk about some startup statistics that I saw recently and how it relates to the story of one of my startup failures in the hopes that it'll save some of you out there from becoming a statistic like I was. CME Insights looked at the reasons why startups fail. They analyzed more than 100 failed startups in detail. And while the reasons that these businesses fail, and others like them are probably interrelated, they concluded a whopping 42% of startups failed because there was no market need. This was by far the largest reason. 29% said they ran out of cash. Now, I would have thought that was the main reason that most businesses failed, but it actually was less than a third of the root cause. 23% said they failed because they didn't have the right team.
0: With almost
1: half of businesses failing because there's no market need for their idea, their services, or their product, that's a pretty discouraging statistic, especially because it means we, the entrepreneurs, were blindsided. We got too excited by our own idea and didn't validate it. It's usually a pretty fixable thing because market research and market testing can often be done pretty inexpensively, even if you need to be a little creative about it, but you have to have a will to do it and be disciplined and objective about it. But many of us are blind anyway, and I can tell you that was me several years ago when I decided to pivot my offerings at Globalocity, my little consulting business. I had previously focused on international expansion assistance especially helping companies find and manage foreign distributors. But business at times was slow. And meanwhile, I had connected with someone who had spent his entire career on indirect channels to market, not just foreign indirect channels, but indirect channels everywhere and all different types. And um, he was at an inflection point in his business and, and footnote here, In hindsight, I should have asked a lot more questions about that inflection point more later. But we struck up a friendship and he suggested we collaborate together, go to market with a comprehensive indirect channels to market consulting offering. sounded great. We knew we had the right expertise with our combined experience and we were convinced there was plenty of demand. After all, we knew anecdotally that lots of companies were unhappy with their current distributors and there was a lot of research out there showing this as well. Plus, I relied too much on the fact that my partner had consulted with many companies over the years on this very topic. But what we never established was, one, whether people would pay to have someone come in and help them improve their distributor network, or whether it was just a minor irritant to, to most companies that they just rather not bother with. Second, we never validated if they would pay, how that offering needed to be pitched and packaged. We never focused precisely on who our ideal clients were. Were they startups, big companies, global companies, in what industries? Fourth, we didn't validate how, whether um, our our combined expertise, how to make that seem like the go-to solution, whether we could actually do that in the face of competition from big name consulting firms. And five, we certainly didn't know how to find these ideal clients and we didn't validate that either. So the result was we had a couple of years of lots and lots of leads and discussions, but we could never close on any significant engagements. A couple little things here and there, but, you know, we were bleeding money. So that was the cardinal sin. We never established there was a market demand for our services as we were pitching them. And looking back, we also both committed the third cardinal sin, the wrong team. I realized looking back, I was counting on my new business partner with his long career working in this area and having many consulting, uh, successful consulting engagements in the past to be able to help answer all these questions and find clients. But that turned out to be a bad assumption. He had never sold these services directly and probably more importantly he had no real interest in selling these services directly he was hoping i would do that um so you know in the past his business model was to align with a very large name brand consulting firm do all their training and workshops on distributor management now the big name consulting firm organized all these trainings charged a pretty penny for it and my partner showed up, delivered the trainings, which were very popular, and then the consulting company was nice enough to let him scoop up any consulting engagements that followed on from the training, and there were there were a few out of every training session for the most part. It was a very successful business model for him for most of his career, but the big consulting company found workshops harder and harder to fill as corporate travel and training budgets dried up and eventually they decided it wasn't a profitable business to be in. They were out, and my business partner was completely out too, hence the inflection point in his career that I should have explored further. I also just, in my naivety and inexperience, had not realized how very different that business model was. For one, he had a cachet of the, the name of this big consulting firm behind him. Second, they invested all the time and resources into organizing these workshops allowing him to show up collect a nice fee for the training even if he didn't get any ongoing business and then also scoop up any business that was generated and because these they had already selected for people who were willing to pay the high price for their seminar and they got three days of education not only on why they needed to to do this and why it was a good idea, but that uh, this guy, my, my ex-business partner, was the right guy to do it. Um, basically, they served him up clients and uh, we had none of that infrastructure. Obviously, we had no name in the marketplace. We tried doing blogs and webinars and podcasts, but it just wasn't enough to push people over the buying hurdle. It it turned out that maybe there was some need for it, but either we didn't package it right or uh, the fact that you just had to have so many conversations with people who were not good fits that um, it would have taken us a long time to find that right client. Um, so we didn't, we really didn't have any of that. And as I said, he, it turned out, really wasn't interested in selling directly. Uh, I had not realized how different it would be to try to mass market the consulting clients. And um, and I counted on him to help. And it turned out not only did he now really have the expertise, he didn't really want to do it. So, you know, you might wonder, well, why didn't we hook up with another training company? And we did think about it. But frankly, the large workshop industry is a mere shadow of what it used to be. Um, There are a lot fewer seminars, they're much pickier about the offerings, Uh, the pay that you get to do the seminars is peanuts, and most of them will not let you uh, scoop up those consulting engagements that follow on. Eventually, we ran out of cash and ideas, and so we fell victim to all three of the top cardinal sins that I mentioned in this study. It was pretty much a disaster. And all of them were preventable if only we'd done a lot more market testing and we both had clear ideas about role clarity. So that is the sad tale of one of my disastrous uh, new business ventures. And I hope you may learn a little from my mistakes. Thanks again for listening this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again to our special guest this week. Dr. Tony Orsini, founder of the Orsini Way. Now, you can find lots more helpful information on my website, globalocityservices.com. You'll find uh, a whole library of different kinds of resources and uh, tools for entrepreneurs. Feel free to email me and contact me. I'd love to hear from you. It's dnagle at lakesradio.org. I promise you'll always get a response from me. Now, be sure to join us next week at 11 Eastern, noon Central. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel wishing you happy entrepreneuring.